What's up, everybody? Legendary Academy Award-winning director Oliver Stone is back with Nuclear Now, his first film in seven years, coming exclusively to theaters across the USA and Canada beginning on April 28th. That's the end of this week. Based on the book, A Bright Future, written by award-winning scholar of international relations, Professor Joshua S. Goldstein, who also co-wrote the film, Nuclear Now explores the possibility for the global community to overcome the challenges of climate change and energy poverty to reach a brighter future through the power of nuclear energy, an option that may become the only viable way to ensure our continued survival sooner than we think. With unprecedented access to the nuclear industry in France, Russia, and the United States, director Oliver Stone delivers a revolutionary documentary that Variety has called an intensely compelling must-see film. It opens in New York and Los Angeles on the 28th, April 28th, a few days from now, put it in your calendars, with special one-day screening events across North America on Nuclear Now Day, which is May 1st. You won't want to miss that. By the way, I will be at the Chicago one on May 1st at the Alamo Drafthouse in Wrigleyville. So if you want to learn more about that or meet me there, go to the Alamo Drafthouse's website and check out nuclearnowfilm.com to learn more about this. And with that, on with the show. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Nuclear Barbarians. It is I, your nuclear barbarian, Emmett Penny, and I am here with returning guest, Noah Retberg, and we are back on our synth fuels grind, my man. How are you doing, buddy? Great. Good. Me too. Um... <laughs> I did find something funny to say here. No, that's all right. Um, so for those who are new to the show, you can go back through on the Substack archives or wherever you listen to this and find our earlier episodes on synth fuels. We've done a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, but one of the things we haven't done is sourcing fuel from carbon, which is important. But before we get to that, I probably need to ask Noah some more big, dumb questions that I'm becoming famous for. And the first one is this, buddy, why do we want that? Why do we want fuels from carbon? Okay, so um, basically all the fuels that we are currently using are carbon-based fuels, whether they are biofuels, which don't have that high of a market share, or fossil fuels, um, they are carbon-based fuels. Oil are, oil is hydrocarbon and gas is hydrocarbons and coal is hydrocarbon leaning heavily on the carbon side. So all the fuels we are currently using are hydrocarbon, but that shouldn't just be a reason to just keep using hydrocarbon. 
So if we um, are trying to transition away from fossil fuels, which are all hydrocarbons, one could consider why don't we just transition to a non-carbon-based fuel? Because if we don't burn a non-carbon-based fuel, there isn't any CO2 in the exhaust to begin with. If we don't, uh, and if we um, use, if we modify our technology in a way that runs on non-carbon-based fuels, it can't be used for carbon-based fuels. So this is um, also something that many green people would prefer, as they are fearful that um, continuing to use combustion technology with the premise of using non-carbon-based fuels, uh, with the purpose of using synthetic fuels, might lock us in in a scenario where we are continuing to burn fossil fuels in the future. So there are some people that would prefer for us to burn non-carbon-based fuels. And theoretically, if you're crazy, you could um, make fuels <laughs> from everything, and if you like, hypothesis: into... if you lose your mind first. So some people, uh, so people that lose their mind um, yeah. with um, alarming frequency are people that are like me into space exploration, mm-hmm. and um, people have put forward the craziest ideas for rocket fuels. Yeah, um, burning fluorine, burning chlorine, and rocket fuels um, to to meet some niche performance criteria storability criteria are some of the craziest and most dangerous fuels you can ever imagine. So, um, so, so let me ask. So let me ask before before you go on. My guess is that uh, when it comes to rocket fuels, there's also like a weight issue that you need to consider, uh, right? Yes. No? Yes. Um, so the efficiency of um, the efficiency of rocket fuels. Um, is basically measured in the exhaust velocity of the mm-hmm. exhaust gases from the rocket engine. And you want this to be the highest you can get it. Um, because if you, if if it gets low, the fuel requirements grow exponentially. And if you want to leave Earth with a very big um, gravitational field, then you need to go very fast and you already have thin margins to leave Earth. So you want very fuel efficient um, rockets, which means you need fuel with high exhaust velocity. Um, fuels with high exhaust velocity are hydrogen and methane and um, kerosene is decent. But um, there are also other requirements um, because uh, early rocket engines were shit to ignite. And um, also storability was an issue if you have um, a rocket that flies out into space where one side of the rocket gets um, plus 200 degrees Celsius, the other gets minus 100 degrees Celsius from being in the sun or being in the sun's shadow, Um, then boil-off is an issue, storability is an issue. So rockets have used um, fuels that you would see nowhere else. And Mm. uh, rockets are a scenario where, for example, nitrogen-based fuels were used, hydrazine, Um, especially... um, Unsymmetric dimethyl hydrazine was used for for rocket engines um, to be able to be stored for a long time and to be able to make uh, reliable rocket engines with the primitive technology of the 60s. Um, but dimethyl hydrazine is toxic. Hydrazine is toxic, and these rocket fuels um, were really nasty. And mm. when we talk about why we, for example, would not want to use nitrogen-based fuels. Um, the toxicity issue is one issue um, that that greatly enforces this. And there is, this is mainly the reason why 
um, space exploration currently wants to go back from using um, hydrazine as a fuel. So this is very interesting. Mm. The only okay. industry in the world where non-hydrocarbon-based fuels were popular is currently shifting away from non-hydrocarbon-based fuels towards hydrocarbon-based fuels. And I think this should give us um, some really good insights into why hydrocarbon-based fuels are so great. It's because they mm. are relatively benign, relatively low in toxicity. They are stable to store and um, easy to handle and easy to um, to make. So this is um, the main reason why the, the space industry moves away from synthetic fuels. But... Um, when we when we talk about synthetic fuels that are non-carbon based, mm -hmm. we, you have three candidates. You have plain hydrogen, you have um, nitrogen based fuels, and you have silicon based fuels. Silicon is a chemical compound very similar to carbon. Mm. It also has um, it it can has it can form uh, four atomic bonds and can easily form bonds with itself. So you can very easily replicate what carbon is doing with silicon. But the problem is silicon, um, the combustion product of burning those silicon-based fuels is a solid, unlike yeah. um, at, at, uh, at normal atmospheric conditions that we find ourselves in. So you would have to disperse, not with a gas that your car or your boiler can easily exhaust, but you have to disperse with a fine ash which accumulates in large mass in large amounts when you burn the fuel. So this is this makes designing um, silicon-based fuels as um, this makes designing um, appliances running silicon-based fuels very hard. Yeah. And for the nitrogen, the problem is that the nitrogen does not want to form bonds with itself. Mm -hmm. So ammonia is very stable; it just has one nitrogen atom. But when you go into the longer chained nitrogen compounds, they all want to break apart. And hmm. this is why why hydrazine is so nice for making rocket engine because you can make monoprop, you just have the um hydrazine um, breaking apart, reacting with itself. But this is very oh. undesirable for our for our um, earthly appliances. And also another negative um, part of the nitrogen is it only has um three of these atomic bonds. So mm -hmm. ammonia is like um, comparable to methane, both have only one nitrogen or carbon atom and then some hydrogen stuck to it. Ammonia has um, three hydrogen atoms and carbon has four. And if when you make the longer chains, you have even, because then always uh, the nitrogen has two of its arms connected to another nitrogen, it has only nitrogen on one of its arm. So it gets really inefficient at storing hydrogen and nitrogen in itself doesn't store energy. When we burn carbon, the carbon reacting with the oxygen releases energy. If we burn nitrogen with oxygen, this eats energy. It's an yeah. endothermic reaction. So we actually don't want to for our nitrogen to burn because then we lose energy that we put into the fuel. And we also produce um, highly toxic um, nit nitrous oxide. So... Um, while there are certainly fans of nitrogen or silicon-based fuels, and there are a crap ton of fans right now, mm -hmm. um, including in established institutions that want to see us um, utilizing hydrogen as mm -hmm. a fuel, which I think we, we, we already talked about why, hydro why using hydrogen as, as a fuel is not that great. 
<laughs> um, so these fuels are are really undesirable, and we want to um, to keep using carbon-based fuels in the future. Right. Okay. So that was a really great summary. So we need there are a lot of advantages to using carbon-based stuff. We've got low toxicity, we've got portability, we've got all of these other factors for it. Um, and unlike something like hydrogen, they don't tend to fragilize the thing that's storing them. Uh, that's really important. Um, so let's talk about sourcing now. What's the most important part of this? I think the most important part is assessing where we are now. We have, mm -hmm. um, which was what we are currently doing. We have um, a large stockpile of carbon and already carbon-based fuels, which we can utilize from the ground. And we are running this basically open cycle. We are putting carbon from our stockpile into the atmosphere until the atmosphere is full of carbon. We don't have any stockpiles anymore. And this isn't a really sustainable way of um, sourcing fuels. So, what we would need to do is um, if, is get away from this unsustainable way of sourcing fuel and sourcing carbon from fossil fuels. And there are limited ways um, in which we can source carbon sustainably. Um, something that is often brought up is the possibility of sourcing um, carbon um, sometimes just for, for the state of lowering CO2 concentration, sometimes um, to, to make synthetic fuels from the smokestacks of, of coal power plants or from cement factories. Um, but the issue here is you need to rely, because this is a way of um, basically greenhouse gas neutral sourcing carbon mm -hmm. for your fuels, but you rely on these other industries to basically never become greenhouse gas neutral. Hmm. If I capture the CO2 from a coal plant, make fuel from it, and then burn my fuel, in the end, global human humanity is um, still increasing CO2 level in the trans in the atmosphere, and we are right. decreasing our stockpile of carbon. You can then do accounting because we have um, because there is a caption process in between the coal plant and the atmosphere, whether you count all that CO2 to my fuel that I'm burning or mm -hmm. to the coal plant from which I captured the carbon. But in the end, um, you can say that my fuel is greenhouse gas neutral, but the, and the coal plant then isn't. But in the end, what this means is I can only source greenhouse gas neutral fuels as long as other industries are not greenhouse right. gas neutral. Continue pumping them out. Okay, I got you. I got you. Interesting. So what, like, what's the next step here? Like, what's the next thing we need to think about? So what, what we will need is, is a way of sourcing carbon that does not negatively affect other industry sectors becoming mm -hmm. greenhouse gas neutral, and that does not affect other, um, and that does not affect um, us stopping to reducing our stockpile. Of hydrocarbons. That sounds so, tricky. Yes. Um, one one way that um, that this sourcing carbon from smokestacks mm -hmm. is often spoken about is the cement industry. 
because when we made mm -hmm. cement or when we roast iron ore, we are breaking down um, carbonate um, salts into um, mineral into, into metals and into CO2. And these carbonate salts, when we break them down, either from cement production or iron production, this releases CO2 into the atmosphere, which is not um, which is not fossil based, but it's still increasing CO2 in the atmosphere. It still has the the previous problem. However, um, while there is cement, there also is lime mortar. Lime mortar mm. is um, basically the mortar that, that predates modern cement most. Um, most historic buildings were built with a lime mortar. It's only um, the Romans for a short period of time. And then uh, people nowadays that have been using cement, which releases CO2 during production, but does not capture it when it hardens. But lime mortar um, basically turns from, lime mortar is calcium carbonate, and that turns into calcium oxide mm -hmm. when you burn it. And then when you uh, mix it with water and sand to have the mortar for your building, then it hardens out and it can only harden when it has access to the air and then draws carbon dioxide from the air back into itself to form calcium carbonate, which then binds your building together. Um, lime mortar, the use of lime mortar for buildings has decreased due to the um, upcoming of cement. But lime mortar is still used in, in many applications in, in construction nowadays, and even um, pre um, factory pre-built mm -hmm. modules for modern building are often used, um, are often made with lime mortar in factories to make housing. So the lime mortar industry, unlike the cement industry, is something where you could source carbon from mm. sustainably forever. But the problem is the lime mortar industry is small. And even if we drastically increase um, the use of lime mortar will forever stay significantly smaller um, than um, will forever stay significantly smaller than what we need in carbon for our fuel needs. Gotcha. And this is an issue because sustainability and scalability are two different things. Many things yeah. are sustainability is at low scale. And um, sourcing sourcing CO2 from um, lime mortar is certainly sustainable, but it isn't scalable. We hit um, we hit limits in, in how many how much fuel we can make from that very early on. Hmm. Okay, so it sounds like we have a big task ahead of us, is what you're telling me. Yes, we need we need to find um, we need to find uh, carbon sources which are both sustainable. And scalable. So, do we have any candidates for that in your mind? So, um, when we excluding, uh, we have excluded um, the capturing of CO two from smokestack because it's scalable, but certainly not sustainable. Mm -hmm. And we have excluded um, the lime mortar because yes, it's um, it is sustainable but not scalable. Um, the next thing that um, is often talked about is using biogenic carbon. Mm -hmm. And now we are coming to something which is much more scalable mm -hmm. and has questionable sustainability. Um, when we are, as we are, in the sphere of people that like nuclear energy, mm -hmm. there is something that most nuclear people really dislike and inspire energy. Mm -hmm. So wood burning, biofuels, this is something that... Um, Many nude bros rightfully are against because the mm -hmm. way we are currently doing it is very much non-sustainable. 
Mm. We're chopping down trees. We're chopping down um, forests without um, replenishing those forests in adequate numbers to burn them in power plants. We are um, growing food, growing mm. starches and oils to make synthetic, uh, to make biogenic ethanol and bio biofuels yeah. to burn in cars and trucks. Um, so this this in an era where um, food production in itself is something that we have to make greenhouse gas emissions neutral um, has um, sustainability problems so in biofuels. Mm -hmm. But when we make biofuels, in general, what people want to make with biofuels is energy. It's bioenergy, not biogenic carbon. Of course, if I capture some biogenic carbon from wood, there is always some energy that comes with that wood. Um, but the if you if you look at how much energy per amount of carbon certain fuels have, you see that for example, wood has drastically less energy, yes. three to four times less energy per amount of carbon, which is why so many people rail against wood burning. Because mm -hmm. if you if you just look at tailpipe emissions, wood burning has drastically more CO2 emissions than coal and drastically mm -hmm. more um, than um, than uh, petrol or, or gas has. So, and this goes for all biomass, except for like fats. Fats have um, a higher higher um, energy for, per um, amount of carbon, which is the reason why our bodies store um, energy in fat gotcha. and not in, in, in carbohydrates or proteins. But mm -hmm. in generally, um, generally biomass has a very, very little energy per amount of carbon involved. And the fuels that we need need to have a lot of energy per amount of carbon involved. So when we make biofuels, we need to go through purification processes. For example, when we turn starch into alcohol, into ethanol, um, basically making a kilogram of sugar, turning it into mm -hmm. ethanol, gives you half a kilogram of ethanol. But the half a kilogram of ethanol contains almost all the energy that the kilogram of sugar had. So the fermentation process concentrates the energy, but it mm -hmm. also loses some of it. And to, to then ferment um, the sugar and then distill it into pure ethanol, these are all energy-intensive processes. So these make um, biofuels so undesirable because we can't harness a lot of the energy in the bioenergy. But mm. if what we are looking for is not energy from our biomass, but just the carbon, and we assume that we have um, a sustainable and clean energy source that is also cheap, nuclear, at our disposal, then we don't need to worry whether um, there is a lot of energy in our, in our carbon source or not, or whether we have to purify it, because we are only looking at the, at the biomass for a source of carbon. And this drastically increases the amount of biomass that we can source. For example, if we you want to make biodiesel, then you make a you put a, a huge field of, of granola and from this field you gain like several kilogram um, of, of red biomass per square meter. But from those several kilograms of biomass, what you get in the end is like three hundred is like hundred milliliters, like a tiny amount that can fit into a shot glass of actual oil. So mm. most of the biomass that gets produced by the plants that made the oil for biodiesel doesn't end up in the oil. Um, we have ways utilizing it 
um, some of, of the compounds get utilized as, as fodder for animals, but others mm -hmm. can't. Just like when we um, grow when we grow wheat, we can um, utilize or corn, we can utilize the starches um, for food or for for ethanol making. But most of the mass of the plant doesn't exist inside the starch, but in um, but exists in other biomass. And there have been several failed attempts at uh, fermenting um, the other biomass into ethanol mm -hmm. into fuel. Um, but we don't need to rely on these processes this fermentation process because we have so much energy at our disposal from our beautiful nuclear power plants um, which we can turn into process heat and which we can turn into hydrogen to then um, use um, these this biomass not as a energy source but as a carbon source to make drastically larger amounts of um, of fuels than we could make if we would use the biomass biofuels mm. Okay. So it's sort of like, uh, let me hear, let me see if I can understand this a little bit because there's a lot going on here. So the way we use biofuels now feels a lot like stepping down the energy ladder rather than moving yes, up. Yes, very much. Right. Right. And so that's sort of, sort of the problem we have with it now. But um, if we could integrate, uh, a low carbon, low emissions energy source that's very abundant into the processing elements, right? Sort of the first stage elements to making this stuff. Then it would actually not move us down the energy ladder. What we're really getting is more options and more abilities to implement biofuels and create them. Yes, um, certainly. It's I I don't I don't um, I don't like to use the word biofuel for this because it's such a loaded term. Okay, um, sure. Yeah, I, 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 meant it, I meant it neutrally, but like, I, I speak yeah. of biogenically sourced synthetic fuels because they are um, drastically different from like biofuels like bioethanol or biodiesel. Okay. Um, but yes, this is this is the thing. We can essentially get like an like an order of magnitude. Um, more fuel than we would get if we would use um, if we would use um, traditional biofuels um, because we can use a much broader array of biomass and mm -hmm. we can and we basically are stepping up the the energy ladder from um, our from from the energy that we get from our nuclear plants or if or renewables if you believe in that um, to make a <laughs> To make a lot more fuel um, than we could if we would just rely on on bioenergy, so this is this drastically um, changes the equation, but it still limits us because plants are not efficient neither at capturing carbon nor at um, uh, capturing energy. Mm. So um, mm. even if we drastically change the amount of carbon that we can use in our fuel and drastically store more. Um, um, energy to that fuel, we can't um, use hydrocarbons in the way that we are currently using. One could argue that we are using hydrocarbons currently for more processes than we actually need, because mm. in, in the future, if when you have plentiful nuclear energy, you could, of course, use grid electricity or nuclear um, heat 
for many of the processes for which we are currently um, burning hydrocarbons. So um, applications for hydrocarbons in the future, outside of the chemical industry, some lubrication, um, and some, um, so that's uh, just chemical industry, some lubrication, some vehicles, planes, and water tree. So um, the sectors where we definitely need to have synthetic fuels as mm -hmm. our energy vector and can't utilize grid electricity or can't utilize uh, nuclear heat directly from our plants, mm -hmm. those sectors are not um, as big as all the sectors that are currently mostly relying on mm -hmm. hydrocarbon fuels for the energy, home heating, process heat, right. um, metallurgy, does not necessarily need to rely on on, um, on, on fuels for the energy, but produce grid electricity. So if okay. we if we basically tighten our belts and only use um, synthetic fuels for, for processes that really need them, like 55% of all cars, 80% of all trucks, planes, mm -hmm. rockets, and some ships, and some lubricants, then it is possible to make enough um, biogenic synthetic fuels in a sustainable way for us to decarbonize our society. But we might desire to drastically grow our energy use and to drastically grow our consumption mm -hmm. of hydrocarbon fuels. For example, um, I talked about water tree. Water tree is something that uh, devours large amounts of um, of hydrocarbon fuels, but really opens us to new possibilities. If we would want, like I do, desire mm -hmm. to see more people in the future gain access to um, space outside of Earth, mm -hmm. then if we were to do that in a world where we could only source fuels from biogenic fuels, this would limit um, access to outer space to um, few people, certainly more than we are currently having, but a, few a, future, a future where like um, more people have access to space exploration, more people have access to air travel, more people have access um, to personal vehicles where we can have more trucks and more ships so that mm -hmm. the rest of the world gets prosperous. Um, that future in the future where we only have um, um, biogenic synth fuels, um, that has some issues with scalability. Mm. Okay, so the biogenic stuff will be useful for more boutique things is what I'm hearing, right? Uh, if we're going to have, uh, perhaps this would be cool in the future, mass space travel, that's not how we're going to be doing it. Um, I, I did a calculation once for like Germany, um, mm -hmm. um, looking at how much biogenic waste we are having in Germany, how much wood burning that if decreased and then reallocated from home wood burning and power plant wood burning to synthetic fuel productions, how much fuels could we made in Germany in, in a sustainable way, not from biofuels, but from biogenically um, sourced synth fuels. And in a way that is sustainable, Germany could probably synthesize around 600 terawatt hours of, of hydrocarbon fuels from um, leftover biomass mm -hmm. and from nuclear energy. 
However, Germany is currently burning over 300, no, over 3,000 terawatt hours of um, fossil fuels per year. So this we need to would need to drastically decrease our use of mm. um, hydrocarbon fuels in order um, to meet this demand uh, with um, from with from synthetic fuels. So home heating, um, process mm. heat for industry, and some vehicles um, in this scenario could not be able to be run with hydrocarbon fuels anymore. But a large amount of vehicles and planes and ships, um, and uh, for example, also. Um, emergency power supply mm-hmm. for like the the diesel generators at nuclear yeah, power plants at all power plants at, at hospitals um also maybe some peating like in in the in the extreme mm-hmm. winter cold um these are applications for synthetic fuels but we would um half no no not half um we could only use a fifth of the um hydrocarbon fuels that we are currently using in germany if we were to rely on nuclear and biomass-based synthetic fuels in the future that is sustainable. Gotcha. Okay. So what else are we missing here? Mm, the unpopular option. Oh, right. Or, Let's get into it. Let's get unpopular. I'm not, I'm not sure. You've had, a, you've had a sip of your monster. By the way, Monster Energy, Noah and I both love you. If you would like to sponsor this podcast, <laughs> I will happily run ads. Love you, Monster. Okay. Noah. Be unpopular for me. Not, I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure it's unpopular, but it's controversial, and okay. it's especially um, controversial inside our sphere of otherwise okay. um, hardcore energy realists. Mm-hmm. And that is direct air capture of carbon dioxide. Okay. Talk to me about it. So, what's the controversy? There is carbon buddy? dioxide in the in the air. Yeah. And if there is something in something, then there is a possibility of extracting that something out of that other something okay. and utilizing it. The issue is that the concentration of carbon dioxide in the air, while it's high enough to cause global warming, is really low compared to um, concentrations that we usually extract out of something. So mm. the concentration in, in of carbon dioxide in the air is currently like, I think, Somewhere between between 400 and 450 um, parts per million, so that is rather low. So we're speaking of um, uh, 0.04 percent of of mm-hmm. the concentration of carbon dioxide here in, in the air. So um, and this is generally usually just the only thing that people critical of um, direct air capture put forward. Mm-hmm. So they just say, oh, it's 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 low it's low concentration in the air. That's all you need to know. That is because it, un- is it, it that is because it's um, not possible. So do something uh, more serious. Mm. So what's the response to that? I would respond to the following. Okay. The average uranium mine has an ore concentration of zero point one five percent. It's not the enrichment of how much U um, uh, 35 to U uh, 38 is in there. Um, this is just the amount of uranium metal per mm-hmm. ton of ore extracted. There is in Namibia a mine called the Rösin mine, which is one of the largest uh, uranium mines on Earth. Mm-hmm. And the Rösin mine has an ore concentration of just 0.04% uranium per mm-hmm. 
um, ore. Okay. And in the ocean, we have a uranium concentration of not nine parts per million, but nine parts per billion uranium in the seawater. So if extracting uranium at, um, at a concentration similar to um, carbon in, in the air is viable, and extracting uranium at a concentration um, uh, five orders of magnitude lower in the mm -hmm. ocean might become viable in the future, in the not too distant future, then why do people think that extracting um, carbon dioxide at a concentration mm. of 400 parts per million is impossible? So I think this would require us to talk about um, how high can any concentration be in order mm -hmm. to make extraction viable? And if we want to discuss this, we need to look at several factors. First is how hard is it to source what we, mm -hmm. we are extracting from? Of course, uranium ore from the resin mine is much harder to source than air or water from the sea or the atmosphere. Um, another thing is the extraction process itself. Is this a very mm -hmm. tedious, energy-intensive um, process to extract? And then there is the issue, what do you do with the tails? So um, you need to dispose of the uranium ore properly. Mm -hmm. In the past, we did not always do that, which has um, led to a few scandals, which sure. still haunt the nuclear industry, even though that they are really long in, in the past. So these are issues that we need to take care of. Also, another issue is how much is what we are extracting worth to us? Because uranium mm. is much more worth to us than carbon. Of course, we can extract um, a lot more from it. And that is the reason why you can go, people go to the most extreme length to extract gold from ore because mm -hmm. it's all of so high worth to us. And then you go to um, less precious metals like steel or copper, um, mm -hmm. where you need to have also decent concentrations in the ore. But in our quest to fuel our ever-growing desire of copper, we are also going to um, ores with ever lower and lower concentrations to meet right. our demand for copper. So just saying it has low concentration doesn't mean it is necessarily not viable. What we need to look at is how hard is this to source it, how hard is it to process, and what kind of baggage, what tails, what toxic byproducts do we leave in the um, in the sourcing and in the extraction process. Okay, so how hard would it be to extract it comparatively? So um, there are two viable processes from extracting carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Um, one is basically running the carbon dioxide um, through an alkaline solution. I don't know if you did that in, in chemistry, but um, usually something that um, a chemistry teacher um, shows his students is um, is the reaction of carbon dioxide in um, in a water solution containing uh, calcium oxide. So when you then, um, the calcium oxide is highly water soluble. And when you then pour um, the carbon dioxide, blow the carbon dioxide gas into the water, you see certain amounts of uh, bubbles rising through the liquid. But what you also see is um, a solid falling mm. out of the solution. And the solid that falls out of the solution is the carbon is the carbon dioxide that is blown through the water, reacting with um, the calcium oxide in the water mm. and then falling out to form calcium carbonate. So 
in this very simple setup, you of course capture um, the carbon from um, the, the capture of the carbon dioxide from the gas that's blowing through the water, and you could um, build machines that do exactly this, that use um, alkaline um, compounds, alkaline oxides that are dissolved in water, and then blow air through them, and then let the um, carbonate salts that form settle and then um, crack those open to reform um, uh, carbon dioxide in the alkaline solution again. Mm. Um, there was one project um, that had aimed to utilize this at even a really large scale mm -hmm. um, back in the 2000s when uh, America was in its uh, nuclear renaissance or its first nuclear mm -hmm. renaissance, um, mm -hmm. which sadly didn't amount to, to a lot. Um, yeah. There were proposals to use um, the cooling towers of an AP1000 reactor for this. So in the cooling towers, you have you have like you have the what the cooling tower does. It pumps large large amount of water that that's that rains down, mm -hmm. and then blows large amounts of air through this to cool the water down, um, and then uh, recycle the water to cool the turbine. And in a cooling tower, you could not just do this with just lake water or river water. You mm -hmm. could do this with uh, alkaline solutions. So there were these these proposals to basically build an AP1000, give it um, cooling towers, special build for this purpose, rather than uh, running uh, just plain water through them, run um, alkaline water through them, collect um, the, the carbonate salts that form at the bottom of the cooling towers, put them through an electrolyzer to separate the carbon and the alkaline metals once again, and then um, put the alkaline solution back into your cooling tower and have the carbon dioxide extracted from this process. So um, utilizing nuclear power plant cooling tower for this was something that was seriously considered. But the thing is, um, the nuclear the nuclear renaissance didn't amount yeah. to a lot. Tragically. So if, if all we got out of it is, is, is two AP1000s to begin with, uh, they got the rather vanilla cooling towers and didn't get mm -hmm. the experimental cooling towers, which hopefully would extract some carbon dioxide from the air. Gotcha. And I think until we will see really large scale uh, nuclear build-outs, again, people won't consider this, this again, because it isn't something that you just do at a small scale. And it isn't something that we will do for non-nuclear power plants. Right. Yeah. It's no bigger than if you do it, if, if you do it for coal, um, um, and it's and it's pointless if you just do it in a small scale. So I don't think we will see this um, way of capturing carbon dioxide from the air rather soon. Mm. Mm. Okay. So yeah, basically what I'm hearing for you is like the major, as far as extraction goes, the major hurdles are like scale is the biggest one. Um, yes, scale and sale is basically the biggest one because there is another way of capturing air of capturing co2 from the air which does work at a small scale but does not work economically at a small scale and that is um is another way is using um is using an organic amino compound filtrate material hmm. to capture the co2 from the air so um what you have in this thing is basically we have like 
a certain type of plastic. And this type of plastic um, has, of course, um, modified to have like really huge surface and um, that air can pass through it and you have, imagine like a catalytic converter and you can have the possibility of air passing through it and you then have um, a large surface and on that plastic compound, you have amino groups onto which the carbon dioxide can react and then bind to. Mm. This basically has a few benefits. First, your filtrate material is a solid, like a solid um, permeable sponge where you can push the air through, not just a big water, big, big pile of water that you have to recirculate in a giant cooling tower. So you can have it um, have a block of it and then force uh, air through it. And as the air enriches this compound with uh, carbon dioxide, it gets trapped in there. And then you can um, run the reverse reaction. So you have a mm -hmm. reaction where air, carbon dioxide from the air catches onto this material. Um, then you can have a reverse reaction where the carbon dioxide gets released. So this reaction is exothermic when it's captured. So the carbon dioxide reacts with amino group, um, mm -hmm. gets captured, um, releases a little bit of, of heat in the process. And when you want to run uh, the reverse reaction, you of course need mm. to supply it with excess. Need to supply it with excess heat, and then you can release the carbon dioxide again mm. and trap it. And the way this is utilized is basically you have this huge um, plastic sponge which can capture CO two in a box. You have a fan on one side and an exit on the other side, and the fan continuously blows blows air through this sponge material yeah, uh... at a certain point of course the sponge is saturated mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm calling it a sponge to kind of describe it it's not going sponge no no, um, no yeah it doesn't look like spongebob you... square pants in there yeah of... i got it i mean it's kind of square and then you can close <laughs> the box and when you can close the box you can pump the air out of it and then um heat the box up to run the reverse reaction and then the co2 gets released and because the box was previously evacuated, what gas gets released in the process is almost pure carbon dioxide. Gotcha. gotcha. And this is um, with, this is a process um, which is currently done at a very small scale in Helisheide in uh, Iceland, where yeah. they have a, a small, um, small plant powered with geothermal energy, which is clean um, and sustainable. Yeah. Um, but this plant only um, captures uh, 4,000 uh, tons of CO2 per year, which is pretty astonishing for, for a demonstration project, but um, still several orders of magnitude away from where we would want it to be. And yeah. there is currently, um, they are currently working or building um, um, a significantly larger plant, basically 10 times of what the currently existing plant at Helis Heidi is. They are still building in Iceland. Um, to my knowledge, that plant is supposed um, to get operational in 2024, so in roughly a, a year. And this plant is then supposed to suck out um, 4,000, uh, not 4,000, uh, 40,000 tons of CO2 um, out mm. of the air per year. And um, what we would need to see from this is not just that um, that you can scale it up, because what mm -hmm. we can see from it currently is that you can do it, that you can do it um, with an amount of energy that is acceptable. And 
what we would need to see is that you can uh, scale it up and that you can uh, decrease the cost of the of the project in the process. Currently, um, it costs like around 600 euros to extract a ton of CO2 from the air, mm. which is significantly, it's more expensive than we would need it to be. But it's like already in, in the right um, order of magnitude from right. where we want it to be at around 100 to 200 um, euros per ton. So if you look at like the, the first nuclear plants at the first solar plants making a thousand um, euros per megawatt hour in, in current days money for, for the electricity. Mm-hmm. And now they are at 20. So mm-hmm. what one could hope for, but not guarantee until it's happened, is that uh, cost will drop significantly as we grow from 4,000 to 40,000 to 400,000 to 4 million to 40 million tons right. of CO2. Um, that in the process of industrializing this, that we can decrease the cost because energy-wise, it's already good. You need um, 600 um, kilowatt hours of electricity to basically run the fans, which is the mm-hmm. most requires the most heat, and you need around uh, 2,000 kilowatt hours of um, low-grade heat mm. to run the process of of capturing a, a ton of CO2. So we are basically below what already below in, in energy then gets released in the burning of hydrocarbons from um things from uh from the fuels that we would hopefully synthesize from this. So energy wise um this process is already decent. Cost wise it currently isn't. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. So that's the mode around that. All right. So let's let's start wrapping this up because i'm eating up a lot of your time today with this i want to know like what you do some forecasting for me where do you see us going on this trajectory what do you hope for i would hope that um when we discuss this we would kind of get serious First thing about the hydrogen question that we had in the last episode, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then about the carbon question. Currently, um, this isn't that big of an issue because when you're only talking about like um, prototype plants of thin fuel production, you can source carbon from all sorts of ways, from fossil fuels, from coal, for example. You can source it uh, from smokestacks, from cement production, from biomass. So if you talk about just establishing uh, like small plants made small batches of, of synthetic fuels to demonstrate that you can, um, people don't worry about sourcing carbon. When you talk about people that try to um, start up businesses made in synth fuels, they don't worry about carbon. They worry about the hydrogen because, well, we haven't already, they haven't figured that out yet. Um, Renewables suck at making hydrogen. We don't have a lot of spare nuclear to source hydrogen, mm-hmm. so they worry about the hydrogen much more than we than, than they worry about the carbon. But we need to talk about our carbon issue, um, if if we want to make uh, synthetic fuels, and we need to make synthetic fuels, even if we see large scale adoptions of battery electric vehicles in the future. Mm. Um, so. What what I would hope to see us in the future is prioritize um, our use of of biomass mm. for in in ways that are more sustainable, 
-hmm. we currently produce a crap ton of bioethanol and biofuels in a manner that isn't sustainable. And we could produce significantly larger amounts of food and also um, um, waste biomass for the production of synthetic fuels if we would stop um, the utilization of just plain bioenergy, not biogenic synthetic fuels, for either power plants or for um, bioethanol and biodiesel production. So I, th I hope this is something where we would be growing. Also, going to discussing um, how do we source, for example, wood. Mm. Um, when it's taught that when when the topic of of wood for for energy is brought up, mm -hmm. um, we usually pretend like it's something that that is just um, exploitative in the way that we source it. That we just um, cut down trees and then trees are grown and um, the amount of biomass in our nature decreases and the amount of carbon dioxide in the air decreases. If this were the case, then just hundreds of thousands of years of primitive energy use from wood would have already killed all life on Earth. So <laughs> at, at, at low rates of extracting wood from forests, of course, the forest mm -hmm. will grow back fast enough. Sure. But this isn't economical. Economical extraction of wood means you cut down hectares of forest at the time, leave mm -hmm. nothing behind, and then don't worry about um, what grows back. So us uh, getting to a more sustainable um, sourcing of wood, both for construction material and for energy, would, some, would be something that I would like to see in the future. Generally, um, more more sustainable forest management. I, I've, I've seen unsustainable and sustainable forest management both here at home. Um, <laughs> and this is something that we need to see. Something that I would like to see is uh, is to to use um, coppicing or pollarding once again. <laughs> Basically, what you do there is you don't... Um, with certain tree species, when you cut them at certain times in the year, at a certain height above the roots, what they do is the tree doesn't die out. It um, rather rapidly grows back. So the, what you can do with this is essentially grow a type of forest where rather than killing trees, you're giving them a haircut. Mm. This has been um, really popular in, in Germany, in England, in the pre-industrial times before we had coal, because right. this way you can um, source large amounts of, of firewood from a forest without destroying the forest and the negative influences um, that would come from just cutting down the forest and the flooding that would ensue. Um, what would be nice is to see a way to do this in an industrialized manner, because mm -hmm. in the past they just walked up to the tree, cut down the branches right, and yeah. then let it grow back. Um, sure. But um, I don't think we have, okay, I, I don't think it, I know that we don't have uh, that much of human labor to spare to source that small amount of carbon. Um, so we would need to have like industrialized way of doing tropis and uh, pollarding is similar way um, of, of, of sourcing wood in the future, which would be a great benefit for biodiversity and um, the amount of sustainable wood that we can source. Um, and what I would like to see is, of course, progress in the field of di direct air capture. Um, I think all of the people that are currently listening to this podcast 
are rather fond of nuclear energy and would, of course, like to see a large amounts of AP-1000s and EPRs and APR-1400s um, grow all over the world. And what would be nice to once consider again is um, whether it is possible to um, extract carbon dioxide from the cooling towers again. It mm. might not be. Rather, sadly, the, the, the project in the 2000s didn't amount to much. And maybe it's, um, we find out that it isn't um, worth the extra right. effort. It's not viable, but yeah. I would, I, would, I would like to see um, not just us build a lot of nuclear power plants, but also once again look into it, whether that, that is possible. Mm -hmm. Something that is currently happening, whether we build nuclear or we don't, is um, the sponge thing um, that we are they're doing in, in, in Iceland, at the Helles Heidi plant. And I am certainly excited um, to find out um, about um, what what we will hear from that. Um, mm -hmm. They have one plant already running, the, the small plant. They're building um, a significantly larger plant. And I'm I'm interested in what will happen from this, what will come from this larger plant, and what will come after this larger plant. So Iceland has a lot of heat and electricity that it sources um, clean and sustainably from uh, from geothermal energy. So growing this industry in Iceland is basically growing this in the right place where we can already do this, unlike in Germany or the US, sure. where we sadly don't have that much clean energy right now. So I'm I'm very interested and I'm 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 following what they are doing. I've contacted those people. Um basically getting as an as a result, let's see what, what we did. They they are themselves cautious, I think, mm -hmm. about this um um process about this process because it is a controversial process and there are a lot of people critical on that. And if I were them, I wouldn't uh, overhype this too much. And I find it interesting that even then, when when talking with someone that uh, wasn't that critical, um, they were they were still like, okay, let's see what will come out of this plant that we are currently building and operating, and then we can give you some some right, more right. Um, constructive numbers in the future when we have the past experience behind us. So, yeah, I'm I'm excited to see what will come out of there hopeful that it will end uh well and um concerned that it might not okay um but i think one thing that i i can uh, say for certain about the direct air capture thing is it won't be decentralized because i've already seen like the some of the worst mixture of renewables and techno optimists you see on Twitter hyping mm. this as something that like everyone can have at their house with their solar panels. Sure, yeah, I've seen that too. You won't, for two reasons. Yeah. A, this thing needs a lot of low-grade heat mm. that can you get easily from nuclear, including waste heat potentially, or from geothermal. Mm -hmm. And if you were to use solar from this, you would basically need to waste a lot of electricity on the otherwise easily procurable heat. Mm. And B, these plants, these things are expensive. They get more expensive the less of them to build. It's, it's like a modular system because the watches themselves are not that giant. Right. But just putting one, uh, one simple box on this is not as if economical as putting 
thousands or hundreds of thousands of these boxes in a um, purposefully structured and layout plan. Just right. like just mounting a single solar panel on your roof isn't efficient. But um, when you mount like uh, gigawatts of solar panels in a large field, it's still not efficient, but it's like uh, more, more economical. These direct air capture plant, what they want to see is um, they want to see large plants. They want to see um, a steady supply of energy because it's an expensive plant. You can't just mm -hmm. run it with a capacity factor of 20% with solar. And they want to see low cost, um, low temperature heat, which you can only get from nuclear or from um, geothermal in a sustainable way, not from solar, not from wind, and certain, and also not from hydro. Okay. All right. That's great. Dude, this was so informative. Thank you for coming on. I learned I hope a it ton. Wasn't, I, I think it, it wasn't a bit too tedious and too boring. I, I learned a ton. It's definitely what I'm, I'm looking forward to re-listening to. Uh, and so I hope everybody else is too. Guys, if you want to check Noah out or follow him, you can find all that stuff in the show notes. Noah, thanks again for coming on. And everybody remember, stay sharp, stay strong, and stay radiant. We will see you next time.